Our Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for your mercy, for your grace. God, I thank you that you love us and that you care for us. God, I thank you that you delight in us, that you are for us, that you are with us. God, I thank you that we can lay our burdens at your feet and that you hear us and that you respond to us. Lord, I thank you that you gather your people to worship you for your glory and for our good. And Lord, I lift up um, Henry and his brother. Lord, can you be with them? Can you strengthen them? Can you help them as they navigate through all the details and all the arrangements? Can you help them to look to you, trust in you, find hope in you? Can you give them peace? Can you comfort their hearts? Can you be with us that are mourning for our sister in Christ, Miss Julie, knowing that she is with you? Can you help us in this time to look to you? Lord, I lift up all the victims of yesterday through their tornadoes and just everything going on. Lord, can you make yourself known? Can you provide? And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts, help us to understand your word? Help us to be in awe of you. Stir our affections for you. Help us to walk in obedience. Help us to surrender. Lord, you know um, each and every one in this room. You know what they're thinking right now. You know how they're feeling. You know what they're believing. Can you speak to them personally? Can you convict them? Can you open up their eyes? Can you help them to look to you, to trust you? Can you make yourself known to them, Lord? Come, Holy Spirit, and reveal truth to us as we open up the word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. And so we are in week 3 of celebrating Advent. And so if you're new here to church and you don't know what Advent is all about, Advent is, is about us celebrating Jesus and his first coming in humility. But it's also the anxious waiting of his second coming in glory. And so as we lit the third candle in anticipation of Christmas Eve, uh, really what we see is a picture of this light, uh, ever-increasing light that is piercing into the darkness, which is a picture of the gospel. Now, in our series, we're talking about the reason for the hope that we have. So many times we find ourselves in the hustle and bustle of the season. We know that Advent is a season of hope, but very seldom do we slow down to really stop and think about the hope that we actually do have. And so even Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And so here's my hope for us in, in this series is that as we look at the passages of both the Old Testament and the New Testament and see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the old, that we would see that our hope is in Christ in every season of life. 
And so in our series, we said the very first reason for the hope that we have is we needed our enemy to be defeated. And so Jesus came in his first advent, defeated our enemy. And in his second advent, he's coming to completely destroy our enemy. Last week, we looked at the second reason for the hope that we have, that in our darkness, God had promised us and has given us a great light. That very light is the God's blessing and presence and revelation, and that light is Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at the third reason for the hope that we have, that amid destruction, God speaks a word of hope. No longer are we outcasts, but rather, God is among us. So let's look at our text in the Old Testament, and then we'll see how Jesus fulfills it in the New Testament. So let's look at Isaiah 7, verse 10, but then also turn in your Bible, put a bookmark in Matthew 1, verse 23. Isaiah 7, verse 10 says this, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. So obviously we find ourselves right in the middle of things that are going on. And we have no idea what's going on, so we have to do a little work. We have to put a little context together, okay? So the very first question we have to ask ourselves is, who is this King Ahaz? He seems like a righteous guy because the Lord says, hey, test me. And he's like, I'm not going to test the Lord. And we know in the Bible it says, don't test the Lord. So what's going on here? So, So let's first look at Ahaz. So first of all, Ahaz was king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. However, he was not a good king. Rather, he was an evil king. He made cast images uh, out of Baal. He burned incense to whatever god he could find. And he even sacrificed his own children in the fire to the god of Molech. He did not follow in the footsteps of his ancestor David, but rather he followed in the ways of the evil king of Israel. Because of his rebellion against the Lord, the Lord handed Ahaz over to the king of Aram. Later on, the Lord will hand Ahaz over to the king of Israel who came and invaded, killed his sons, took royal officials out, and then also deported over 200,000 captives. But because of the Lord's mercy and grace, he sent a prophet, Obed, who confronted the king of Israel and said, Is it good for you to capture your own brothers and sisters? Don't do such an evil thing, but rather return them, for they are your own brothers and sisters. And so the king of Israel returned the people from captivity. And in about 734 B.C. to 732 B.C., the king of Israel and the king of Aram formed an alliance to wage war against King Ahaz. And instead of King Ahaz running to the Lord, depending on the Lord, asking the Lord to deliver him, he went to the king of Assyria. And we find this in 2 Kings 16, verse 7. It says this, So Ahaz sent messengers to King Tila Pileser of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. March up and save me from the grasp of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are rising up against me. And later on in the text, we find out that he took all the gold in the temple, all the sacred furnishing pieces, cashed it in, took all the treasuries in his palace, all the treasures in his kingdom, cashed it in to give it to the king of Assyria. 
And what we see, now we read verse 10, the Lord speaks to him. The Lord is patient with him. And in speaking to King Ahaz, he tells Ahaz, ask me for an unrestricted sign. In other words, what the Lord is doing, the Lord is testing him. If there was even a remote spark of faith, God wanted to give Ahaz an opportunity to express it. And notice what the Lord says in verse 11. He says, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. What does he mean by the Lord your God? What that reminds us of is that despite Ahaz and his disobedience, despite the people remaining unfaithful to the Lord, the Lord does not abandon them. He's not saying, you know what, I'm done with you. I'm no longer your God because you are unfaithful to me. But rather what we see is the Lord remains faithful regardless of his people's unfaithfulness. Why? Because he made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and later on to King David. So the Lord tells Ahaz, hey, Ask for a sign. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, what he's doing is the Lord is showing Ahaz that nothing is outside of the Lord's sovereign rule. And Ahaz has already made his plans. He's already made up in his mind not to be dependent on the Lord, but rather to be dependent on the king of Israel. And in his monumental piece of hypocrisy, he says... Oh, I will not test the Lord. More than likely, he's thinking of Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, where it says, Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massah, which indicates to us that Ahaz at least had some knowledge of the law, which he was supposed to know, which he was supposed to follow. And in his hypocrisy, he's like, I'm not going to test the Lord, but I'm certainly going to make cast images out of Baal and burn incense to other gods and sacrifice my children to the Lord, to, to the God of Molech. But I am not going to test the Lord. And really what he's doing, just like Satan who knew Scripture and misused Scripture and yet walked in disobedience and rebellion, rebellion against, this God, against God, so Ahaz and his godlessness and his inappropriate, unbelieving allusion to what God had said is walk new Scripture, abuses Scripture, and refuses to walk in obedience. And look at how Isaiah responds to this hypocrisy in verse 13. Isaiah says this in verse 13. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? So Isaiah addresses Ahaz as house of David. What does he mean by that? Well, it's an expression that means that Ahaz is occupying the head of the house of David. It recalls this covenant that the Lord made with David of granting him an eternal offspring, an eternal kingdom. And the two ways this can work out is either he is going to have a consecutive offspring forever and ever that will sit on the throne, or he will have one offspring that will live forever and that will sit on the throne. But regardless, when Isaiah is saying, house of David, in a sense, he's saying, despite Ahaz in his disobedience and rebellion against the Lord, the Lord will not replace him with another dynasty. And even though the Lord might remove him from his throne, his son will take over because of the Lord's promise to David. 
It's not like the Lord can say, you know what, I'm done with you. I'm done with you and your children, your whole household. I'll find somebody else. But Isaiah says, no, house of David. The Lord made a promise, and despite your unfaithfulness and your rebellion, the Lord is going to remain faithful. But notice what Isaiah says. He says, not only are you frustrating men, but you are also trying the patience of my God. In a sense, Isaiah tells Ahaz, it's not your God. You're not following him. It's my God. Not only are you frustrating me as a prophet, but the Lord's patience is running thin because of your disobedience, because of your rebellion. And so because of the Lord's patience running thin, uh, look at what Isaiah says in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you your people and your father's house such a time as has never been seen, as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Israel. So we read in this text that the Lord is giving Ahaz a sign. And if you look at this sign, this sign doesn't sound very good. It is a sign to Ahaz that the Assyrians are coming. They're coming to destroy and you can just imagine at the end of verse 17 when Isaiah says he will bring the king of Assyria, the terror that came over Ahaz because the Assyrians were known for their brutality. And so he's overwhelmed. And so this is a destructive sign. But then here's the confusing part. If you're familiar with the Bible, you say, well, Neil, time out here because verse 14 kind of sounds like a Christmas verse. Look at verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Isn't that a Christmas verse that we read out loud? So what in the world is going on? Is it a bad sign or was it a good sign? What is this sign all about? So the first thing we have to do is we have to do a little work. We have to identify who is this virgin and this child. What's their identity? Now, obviously, I'm not going to be able to give you the answer with certainty because this is debated among biblical scholars, and it will always be debated among biblical scholars. So what I'm saying is not 100% true. I'm just trying to show you what it could possibly mean and the best interpretation according to the best of my ability as I trust the Holy Spirit that has illuminated me in this text. Don't be bored with the details. There's going to be a point but the details are important, okay? So there are three major views to come up with the identity of this virgin and the identity of this child. The first major view is especially uh, common among Jews in the second century. They understood the prophecy to mean Ahaz's wife and his son Hezekiah. The problem with this view is Ahaz's wife already had children, which means she could not be a virgin, and Hezekiah was already born at that time. 
So we can kind of take that view and maybe put it to the side. The second view is others identify the woman as Isaiah's wife or a woman that's engaged to Isaiah. And the child then is Isaiah's son, and his name is, and I think this is the best pr- pronounced, I don't know, it's Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Imagine naming your child that, okay? And we'll see a little bit more in Isaiah chapter 8. But here's the problem with this interpretation. The Hebrew term translated for virgin would not normally be used for a woman that, is, that already has children. However, it could be possibly true. Isaiah could have been engaged, which meant his wife has died. So here's this new woman that he's engaged to. But then the second problem is the contradictory names. What will this child's name be? Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Isaiah doesn't name his son Emmanuel, but rather he names him Mahar Shalal Hashbas, which means the spoil speed the prey hastens. God with us, the spoil speeds the prey hastens, a.k.a. destruction is coming, and this is what the son's name means. So it's like, okay, what do we do with that one? The third view is, which you can guess, the virgin is named Mary, and the child is Jesus, who all jumps on that bandwagon. Okay. Here's the problem with this view. Who's the sign to? The sign is to Ahaz. How can 700 years later, Mary and Jesus be the sign to Ahaz? That's one problem. The second problem is, what does verse 15 mean? Read, read verse 15. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey. I don't think Jesus ate curds and honey. Then look at verse 16 and 17. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And so when you read verses 15, 16, and 17, it's not talking about a way, way, way distant future, but rather a comparatively close future. But then we have another problem because Matthew tells us that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And if we hold firm to the inerrancy of Scripture, we say Scripture is without error. Matthew cannot be wrong. He must be right. But what do you do with the sign to Ahaz? What do you do with verses 15, 16, and 17? You see how this can create a debate. Now, last week we said when we study prophecy, prophecy can be very confusing. Why? Because sometimes the prophet will use future tense and past tense in the same verse. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Is it future or is it past? Is it going to take place or is it already taken place? And they use it interchangeably. And sometimes last week we we saw the reason why Isaiah did it. He's using past tense because of the guarantee of it. It's as good as done. As good as it has already happened, that's how you know it's going to take place. Another part of prophecy that is confusing, and this is where we're getting at in this text, um, the prophecy could have an immediate fulfillment and also a future fulfillment. So now you can see where I'm going. I think, 
to the best of my ability of studying the text and trying to remain true to the text, the whole Bible, I do think the best explanation is that this prophecy is a partial fulfillment in the birth of Isaiah's son, which is named Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. This is why I say this. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large piece of parchment and write on it with an ordinary pen. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, a.k.a. Hey, write this name down because you're probably not going to remember it. I'm just kidding. Verse 2. I've appointed a trustworthy witness, the priest Uriah and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah. Verse 3. I, that's Isaiah, I was then intimate with the prophet Test, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. Do you kind of see the illusion in, in chapter 7? Okay, I don't have to explain much to you. So we see here the partial fulfillment. The Assyrians are coming. And the sign will be for King Ahaz, Isaiah will have a son. And by the time he matures, he can say father or mother or discern between good and evil. Damascus, Samaria will be destroyed. And you know they're coming for you to Jerusalem. So it's a partial fulfillment. But it also has a future, an ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. That is from a virgin in the house of David, and this will help explain Matthew as he sees the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So let's stop here. Let's do a quick recap, and then here's my point I'm going to make. So, so far in our text, we've seen Ahaz. Is he a good king or a wicked king? He's a wicked king. The king of Aram, the king of Israel, is coming to invade Instead of King Ahash trusting the Lord, he's depending on the king of Assyria. The Lord in this grace confronts him, says, ask me for any sign. And in a sense, the Lord is testing him. If there's a spark of faith, now's the time to express it. But Ahash is one big hypocrite. And the Lord's patience is running thin. And the Lord says, here's a sign for you. A sign of destruction. But then when we look at the sign, not only is it a sign of destruction, it's also a sign of hope. So here's my point. Okay? I'm glad you, you stuck with me. If you're taking notes, here's the main point of today's message. And this point is kind of mind-boggling. And what I mean by it, it's not going to blow your minds. It's just hard for us to comprehend. How could it be? Is this if you're taking notes? Amid the destruction, God speaks a word of hope. Amid the destruction, God speaks a word of hope. Think about this sign that the Lord is giving to Ahaz. It is a sign of destruction. In other words, Ahaz, here's how you know the king of Assyria is coming. Here's how you know you will be destroyed. 
Again, I'm not going to read uh, chapter 7, verses 14 to 17. You can read it again, but it doesn't sound very good. He's terrified. And yet, as this is a sign of destruction, it's also a sign of hope. A sign of hope for the future. For the sign is the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Look at Matthew 1, verse 23. It says this, Matthew 1, verse 23. It says, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So here's a sign that is both a sign of destruction and a sign of hope. A sign of God giving his people over to the Assyrian invasion and a promise that God will not forsake them, that he will be with them. In my, in my time with the Lord this week, that this truth amid destruction, God speaks a word of hope. It's almost like been present in every single text we've looked at through the Advent series. Think about in Genesis chapter 3. After man has rebelled against the Lord, what does the Lord do? He punishes man by speaking curses onto the serpent and onto man and onto the woman. And yet amidst speaking these curses, what does he do? He speaks a word of hope. He says a rescuer is going to come and to save humanity from the punishment of sin. Last week, when Isaiah was saying, darkness is coming, the Assyrians are coming, and there will be only despair and distress, suffering and affliction, what does the Lord do? He promises a great light amid the destruction. He speaks a word of hope. Even in our text in Isaiah chapter 7, as Ahaz is rebelling against the Lord in the middle of the destruction, giving him a sign of destruction, he also speaks a word of hope. A son is coming, and he will be named God with us. And this is what we learn from this text. Second thing we learn from this text, if you're taking notes, is this. God is transcendent over us, yet he is present with us. Think, just think about this. God is transcendent over us, yet he's present with us. What, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is God and all of his glory is far above us. Yet in his grace, he's near to us. For he's called Emmanuel. God is with us. Like, like, like just stop and consider the promise. God with us. The God who spoke everything into existence. The God who rules over all creation, every star in the sky, every mountain peak, every grain of sand, the sun, the moon, the oceans, and all the deserts, God rules over them all. 
the God where a host of angelic beings are continually worshiping Him, singing praise to Him, the God whose glory is beyond our imagination and His holiness is beyond our comprehension, that very same God that is present with you, the very same God who took on flesh and dwelt among you, the very same God who came to die in your place. God is transcendent over us, and yet He's near to us. The third thing we learn from this text is, if you're taking notes, is God is faithful in keeping His promises. God is faithful in keeping His promises. I think about the God who made a promise to David. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then to David. And seeing the unfaithfulness of his people, and actually when he made that promise, he knew how unfaithful they were going to be. And yet he keeps that promise. The promise he made through the prophet Isaiah, destruction is coming and destruction did come, even though the Lord delivered them. They certainly did come through the Assyrians. And then he promises a child, And he'll be named Emmanuel, God with us. I'm reminded, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. That is Jesus Christ. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. Like, well, what does Paul mean by that? What Paul means by that is that every promise that God made is yes in Jesus Christ. It's not maybe, it's not could be, it's not should be, it's yes. This is why when we pray, we say amen. Not to stop prayer, but to say amen to the glory of God because we know the promise that he made to us is yes in Jesus Christ. So so what does that mean for us? What that means for us is that we can be sure of the Lord's faithfulness in us and our lives today. So when the Lord says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, what does that mean? That's a guarantee. You can take that to the bank. When he says that I'm your refuge and your strength, your ever helper in times of trouble, you can have certainty in that. When the Lord says that, uh, that nothing, neither death or life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, hostile power, height or depth or any other created things will have any power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We can have a confidence in such a sustaining power. And when the Lord says a day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death will no longer exist, nor grief, crying, pain will no longer exist because these previous things have passed away. That too is a guarantee. For the Lord is faithful to his word. So here's our application if you're taking notes. Here's the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amid destruction, God speaks a word of hope to be present with us in Jesus Christ. 
when we find ourselves in the middle of destruction, where it feels like our worlds are falling apart, everything is not going the way it should be, and you're wondering, can this get any worse? What does the Lord do? He speaks a word of hope. What's that word of hope? That he is present with you in Jesus Christ. Do you feel alone? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel like an outcast? Do you feel like you don't belong? Do you feel hopeless? Isn't this the anthem of our culture today? If you feel like that, let me tell you, stop looking around you. Stop looking inside of you. The answer's not within. The answer's not around you. But look up. Look to Christ. For He is with us. You're not alone. You've not been abandoned. You belong to Him. You are in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 22, he, he says he has put his seal on us and has given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. What does that mean? What's your deposit? How do you know that the Lord will accept you? Because his spirit lives inside of you. Your deposit is not your good works. Your deposit is not your behavior. Your deposit is not how you nail it in life or how you fail in life. Your deposit is the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed. And so look to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. For He is with you. He is your guarantee. And so as we get ready to sit to the tab- at this table, think about what this table represents. We get to sit in the presence of God. We're invited in not because of a good week, not because we've nailed it. We get to sit at the table because of what the Lord has done on our behalf. Uh, let's, let's take some time and pray right now. Maybe there's a couple of things that you need to reflect on. Our Heavenly Father, as we get ready to sit at this table, can you just make yourself known? Can you help us to understand that you are with us? Lord, you know each and every one here. You know what we're thinking and how we're feeling. Can you meet us? As we continue to pray, maybe for some of you this year you're feeling hopeless, you're overwhelmed in life, maybe you feel lonely, maybe you feel abandoned, maybe you feel like God has forsaken you, maybe you feel like God does not love you, or God doesn't care about you. And I want to remind you this morning, God speaks a word of hope in your life. And the word he has spoken is this living word, Jesus, that he has given you, that is dwelling with you, that lives inside of you. 
And how do I know that is true? Because of the faithfulness of his word. And I'm reminded when I sit at this table, I'm not alone. I've not been abandoned. I've not been forsaken. He is faithful. I get to sit in his presence and I get to eat, not because I've done anything good, but because what his son has done for me. I get to eat as I feast on the body of Christ that was broken for me, as I feast on the blood of Christ that was shed for me, the new covenant I have. And this table helps reorient my mind and my heart and reminding me of the hope that I have. And that hope is in Jesus. And so whatever you're going through, the season of life, you find yourself. Whether you are distracted by the things of this world or whether you are hopeless. See this invitation as come and fix your eyes on Jesus. And so as we get ready to distribute these elements, like this is what I want you to meditate on, to reflect on. God is with you. All the promises is yes in Jesus Christ. So what promise do you need to cling to this morning? That promise is yes in Jesus Christ. I'm just amazed at this text that the Lord gives a sign to Ahaz, which is a sign of destruction and yet a sign of hope. When we look to the cross, it's a sign of a curse. Curse is the man who's hung on a tree. And yet for us, it's a sign of hope. Where Jesus died in our place, took upon himself our sin. How do we know the hope that we have? We look to Jesus. This morning we are reminded that he's with us. That by this bread, his body was broken for us. We eat it in remembrance of him. This cup that represents his blood that was shed for us the new covenant we have in him. We drink it in remembrance of him. Why don't you take some time right now and just praise the Lord. Thank him for his faithfulness and for his goodness. Thank him for his kindness. Thank him that he's never abandoned you. He's never forsaken you. Thank him for the work that he has initiated through Jesus. Thank Jesus for the work that he's accomplished for you. Thank the Lord for all the promises we have that is yes in him. Lord, we thank you. Can you help us in the midst of difficult times to cling to these promises? 
Can you help us to not look around and get distracted, not look inside, but look to you, trust in you, cling to you, be overwhelmed by you and awe of you? Can you address our fears and our insecurities? Can you remove the idols that we're clinging to and bowing down to? And can you help us to trust you as we walk in obedience to you? We thank you for everything you've done for us. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.